The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, thanks a lot, Carl. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Frank Holland in for Scott Wapner. Stock's down after two monster days of gains. We take stock of the recent run, and we debate your next money move. Plus, a historic production cut by OPEC, what it means for energy stocks and the broader market from here. Our investment committee today, Joe Terranova, Shannon Sakosha, and joining me right here on set, Kevin O'Leary, a.k.a. Mr. Wonderful, and Jim Labenthal, a.k.a. Farmer Jim. you got to Google those if you need an explanation. Before we get started, let's get a check on the market right now. Stocks, as we said, are down after huge days. The Dow right now down about 300 points. That's pretty much where it opened. The S&P down a percent and a quarter. The Nasdaq, the hardest hit, down more than one and a half percent. We got to mention that bond yields, they're back on the rise. The 10-year yield hitting 3.7 percent, about a 15-point basis hike move to the upside from where it closed yesterday. And that's where we begin, gentlemen. Thank you both for being here in person. Jim, I'm going to come over to you first. I mean, we saw that rapid move when it comes to the 10-year yield, 15 basis points or so. We're also getting a lot of other information right now, OPEC production cuts, um, issues of, of the ISM in the Eurozone, a lot of data points to come in here, and also questions about the Fed, pause, pivot, stay on the course. What do you think we're seeing today? Well, you just went through a long laundry list of things that are facing the markets. I like to simplify down to the thing that probably matters the most. It is the Fed. And, you know, the Fed's really a derivative of what's going on with inflation. So very nice two-day bounce here on the idea that the Fed is either going to use one of the three Ps, a Fed put, a Fed pause, or a Fed pivot. Um, the bad news is none of those things are going to happen. What we should be looking for, if you want to lay out hope, is that the Fed will slow down the rate of rate hikes. Uh, the markets and I are expecting 75 basis points in November. In order for them to back down a little bit and go to 50 basis points, you need to see better inflation numbers than what we've seen so far. Frank, next week, we've got the CPI PPI. Headline year over year on the CPI is expected 8.2%. I don't know where it's going to come in. For quite some time, I thought that inflation is going to come in better than expected. That has been wrong. So I'm not going to throw that prediction out there. But what I will say is that if you get a seven handle on headline year over year CPI, that should back the Fed down to 50 basis points. And the markets would like that a lot. That would, piece, that would put substance and fundamentals to the last couple of days of rallies. But absent that, the market's been rallying on the idea that the Fed is going to pivot or pause or whatever in response to something breaking in the system, whether that's the Bank of England or whatever. Bottom line is they're not going to do it. And they're telling us all week uh, that's what all the Fed speakers are saying is that they're going to keep the course until and unless they see convincing signs of inflation coming down. Bottom line, that requires a seven handle next week. And that is the most important thing facing the markets right now. Yeah, Jim, you know, hope springs eternal rallies do not uh, last for eternities right now. Looking at the Dow right now, only one stock in the green. That's Nike right now. Shannon, I'm going to come over to you. How are you viewing the market action that we're seeing today after those huge rallies over the, over the last two days, I should say? 
Well, I, I, I look at this in terms of just what is our outlook for, you know, the next couple of quarters, but really what's our outlook for the next month? And, you know, if we go back to Thursday or Friday of last week and you had asked me how I felt about the next four to five weeks, um, I would have been somewhat concerned. You know, we're entering into an earnings season that we could continue to see uh, guidance downward. That's what everybody is concerned about from a multiple perspective is that we're not only have seen multiple compression this year, but we're also going to start to see earnings come down very markedly from an estimate perspective for 2023. Um, so as we go into earnings season, we're also have the culmination of the midterm elections. Uh, you know, that could be a positive on the other side of the election. But right now, to Jim's point, we're pending a CPI report. We're pending the beginning of earnings season. Um, we're seeing, you know, some, I would say, mixed data in terms of uh, job openings this week, as well as um, your announcement um, that came on TechCheck of, of, uh, of jobs being cut from an Amazon perspective in terms of openings. So I think we have a a, a, a very mixed story over the next couple of weeks. When What I start to get optimistic about or what I start to look at is how does that set us up for the end of the year? Um, and is this reallocation that we've seen, are there going to be opportunities to potentially um, look at industries and sectors that do have a, a, a fundamental tailwind for next year, despite the fact that they're not going to receive a, a strong secular tailwind into next year? And so, uh, you know, I'm still cautious over the next couple of weeks. I think we're going to continue to see volatility. Um, we're seeing big macro moves one way or the other. That's why you're seeing the percentage of stocks that are moving in the S&P 500 be very significant because these are macro trends. And until we get some clarity around inflation and start to see that real improvement um, and sort of get past this end of October tipping point, um, I think we're going to be in the market very volatile over the course of the next couple of weeks. So, Joe, we're looking for some clarity on CPI and a whole host of other things. We did get some clarity on the oil market today. OPEC uh, making that major cut, 2 million barrels per day. Uh, we're going to talk energy more later in the show, but how are you seeing the market? Um, I would think that that cut would be inflationary unto itself. From a longer-term perspective, energy and healthcare are two sectors that still make sense for investors to carry it in an overweight, given the overall environment that both Shannon and Jimmy described. We're going to come through a very difficult earnings season. I don't think you're going to get any degree of a full certainty on whether this was the ultimate low uh, for the market that we experienced last week. In the interim, what you're witnessing right now really relates to a reaction to where the U.S. dollar is pricing, where Treasury yields are going. We have the perception that on last Wednesday, we had a peak for the U.S. dollar. Therefore, subsequent to that, a lot of uh, the areas in the equity market where there was a significant short interest being maintained, whether that was in the chemical names, the steel names, the gold names, the industrial names, overall materials themselves, you saw a significant unwind. You saw it in the Russell outperforming over the last two days, the S&P 500. The Russell was up uh, a little bit less than 7%, while the S&P was up around 5.7%. So this has not really been about Apple or, or Microsoft or technology recovering, which a lot of the rallies in the past have been about. This has been a reaction to a potential peak in the U.S. dollar. Uh, I would caution everyone that we did the same thing in early September, heading into an inflation report. We unwound the bearish positioning. We're doing it again right now, but we're doing it a little bit differently this time, Frank. We're doing it in the places of the market 
that have that correlation to the dollar. And if you're looking for any degree of trading opportunity, uh, I would guide investors in that direction. You know, speaking of opportunities with the dollar, uh, I know you just <clears> recently <throat> bought Freepoint Macaron. We were just showing the chart a second ago. The dollar up almost a percent and a half today, but actually down a percent over the last week. So obviously that rise of dollars put a lot of pressure on a lot of companies. What made you want to buy a Freepoint Macaron with the dollar declining briefly? Obviously today's an exception. Well, it's, it's, it's a reaction to the overall market rallying over the course of, of two days, 5.7%. We all know the statistics on the, the infrequency of doing that in a very uh, short period of time. So I, I wanted to do something, uh, accept risk into the portfolio in response to that. Uh, initially, I was looking at it, into doing it in some of the mega cap uh, technology or consumer discretionary names or maybe technology overall itself. But I really thought the proper way to add that risk was to do it with a correlation to the U.S. dollar, a U.S. dollar which has risen nearly 17 percent year to date. So in, in the interim, while we wait for further clarity on earnings and what the Federal Reserve is going to do, I really think everything is going to be that reaction to the U.S. dollar. And Freeport McMoran commodities themselves have been responding to the lower dollar. Freeport McMoran, a great example of that. And I really think you could look at multinational companies universally here as a potential trade opportunity if we are going to see last Wednesday be the peak near term for the U.S. dollar. All right, Kevin, over to you. By the way, welcome back. First time on the set in about three years, I believe. I think all the other times we had you with that, that um, imaginary background on Zoom. Great to have you here in yeah, person. It's great. I, I just, it's a great vibe. It's just wonderful. I feel like you know, it was just yesterday I was here, but it was three years ago. All right, well, just yesterday we had a rally. Today, though, yeah. market's uh, down pretty big. NASDAQ, the hardest hit. How are you positioning your portfolio? How are you viewing what we saw over the last two days versus what we saw today? Yeah, so it's a stark reminder to all investors, whether you pick stocks or whether you buy indices, what happened over the last 36 hours. You can't time the market. And if you see what happened in the last two trading sessions, you got over 5% returns. If you're not in the market for those periods, that's 16 hours of trading, you may have missed 20% of the gains you're going to get in the year because you just don't know. And so my perspective on this is we've changed our strategy a little bit. When we used to want to put risk on like many other operation companies or institutions, you could just buy the SPY and at the same time get fully exposed to every company in the S&P 500. Not doing that anymore. Um, I am starting to favor cash flow over growth. Because when I look at the compression occurring on PEs, even big names getting absolutely crushed, I'd rather have a strategy that's an actively managed index. And I've chosen an Alps product in the large S&P called OUSA. It only owns, owns 100 of the S&P. The very best companies, best balance sheets, paying distributions, focused on quality return of assets and cash. So a subset of the S&P. Now that puts a lot of work on me to work around it because there's 400 other companies, some of which I may want to own, that don't make the cut in OUSA, and I buy those. But the other sector that's been ignored that I think is a safer place to, to hide in the weeds, if you want to say, is during this period of the U.S. dollar being so counterproductive to companies in the S&P that are trying to ship overseas, what about our mid-cap space, the Russell 2000? They are not exposed to currency. They're selling domestically. However, 2,000 companies that index, of which two-thirds make no money, Again, using another Alps index, OUSM, only 200 of the 2,000 that are profitable. So now I have 300 names. I buy those 
plus I pick other names around them that I like to own that are not in those indices. That's my new strategy for the next 18 months. So, Kevin, I want to bring you back to your free, free cash flow thesis. I think you have a pick for us, Lamar Industries. Kind of explain this. This is a, a company that does advertising. If yeah. you drive on a highway anywhere, we see their billboards. Yes, stock's been slaughtered. Um, it's already priced in the worst case, in my view, of advertising in 2023. A whopping dividend, strong cash flow, a, almost an oligopoly or a monopoly in this space. You see these signs all over America. It's a well-hated name but it qualifies for what I like in terms of free cash flow. Look at that div yield over 5%. And I don't think there's any risk, and it's my opinion again, of this dividend being cut. Now, I may be wrong about advertising metrics, but if there's going to be $1 spent in advertising, Lamar's getting a big chunk of it. And so I like it for the point of view that it's sitting in the weeds, I know, and I'm, not, I'm sure the economy's not going to zero next year, and they'll still be around. Just another idea, but this is not included in either of the indices I'm using, so I had to buy it outside. So, Jim, I'm going to come over to you. Are, are you also looking at free cash flow? I know Evercore ISI came without a list, uh, came out with a list a few weeks ago, looking at free cash flow names. I don't know if you own any of these. I looked at your disclosures, but are you focusing on that? Always focused on that. Always, 100% of the time. I mean, I, I love what Kevin's saying, and he knows it. We may not have been in person for the last three years, but we've talked, and and this is how I invest, and it's how he invests. Why? Because he's a business owner, and he knows that cash flow is the lifeblood that makes companies exist. Occasionally. You can get a company that can get transfusions from the capital markets. Those transfusions can't go on forever. Free cash flow is what companies live on. Now, extending what you're saying, Kevin, that leads to something I've believed for quite some time, which is that we are in the middle of a growth-to-value transition. I've said this a lot. Last 10 years, we had growth-leading value, like crushing value. The 10 years before that, it was value over growth. There's a reason why this pendulum swings, and it oscillates in long periods, because as people come back to the markets in a downturn like this, they go to what was tried and true uh, during the previous cycle, and that's been growth. But people are seeing, even as they get back into you know, technology stocks, we're going to talk about that later, that they get their hands slapped. And then they start to look elsewhere and they start to look at what Kevin and I talk about, free cash flowing companies for which there is a fundamental reason, whether we're talking about materials, energies, industrials, financial, there's a fundamental reason. Stop me if you've heard this before. But the next few years, you're going to see the benefits of supply chain onshoring. By the way, just yesterday, Micron announced another $100 billion of spending in the U.S., CapEx spending on semiconductor plants. And that's a drop in the bucket with what's been going on. That all requires those types of companies that I just mentioned, that Kevin's talking about, that increase demand for their services and products. That's why I like this space. I'm with Kevin on this. All right. One quick note right now. I want to talk about the markets for a second. Off the session lows right now, the Dow actually only down. I want to say only down about 180 points. When we started the show down about 300 points. The S&P and the Nasdaq both rising about a quarter of a percent. So some upside to the market right here. The dollar, Kevin's back. Because Kevin's is, is it all about Kevin? <laughs> you, you yeah, can't it's because I'm in the studio. By Frank, the time I'm leaving this set, we're going to be up on the Dow. Watch this. <laughs> we'll have to watch Frank the, see. Frank, the dollar peaked. Joe, I want to come over to you. Yeah. Frank, the dollar peaked at 1020 this morning. Ten minutes later, that's when the bottom was in for the S&P. Everything right now is a reaction to the U.S. dollar and to Treasury yields. It's okay. Understand the environment, but that's what the market's trading off of right now. And it does speak to 
a lot of the companies that everyone's identified, which have strong free cash flow generation. And Jimmy mentioned some of the material, commodity, industrial names. Those are the ones that have the highest sensitivity. That's where you're going to find the opportunity if everything is pricing off where the dollar is. But clearly today, the response in the S&P, it's because the dollar peaked at 1020. You know, speaking of dollar, one company that's been impacted somewhat by the dollar has been Apple. Obviously, a lot of sales overseas. I believe almost uh, two-thirds of their sales overseas. You recently trimmed Apple. Kind of give us a sense of why you wanted to get out of Apple right now. Yeah, I trimmed it last week. Um, Apple's a great company. Now, here's here's the details. I still own a little over 3% of it in my portfolios. That's actually a lot, right? But it's about one half of what the market weighting is in the S&P 500. So I'm meaningfully underweighted. And look, it's really just this simple. Apple's a great company, but its multiple is not going to expand going forward. From the low 20s it's in right now, it just doesn't have the earnings per share growth that would merit a higher multiple than what it's going to have. So that being the case, share price on Apple is going to appreciate somewhere in the high single digits, which is where over the next few years its earnings per share growth is going to be. Why? Because it's actually kind of a mature company. It's not like they're going to come out with the next unheralded, unheard of product like the iPhone was 10 years ago. So fine company, but that's not where the leadership is going to come from. That's why I trimmed it. Um, Also, obviously, the news in the short term about some production uh, uh, reductions, if you will, even if that's just walking back some increases that hadn't happened. Look, it's very simple. This is not where market leadership is going to come from over the next few years. And I still have shares, but I have meaningfully less than the market overall. So, Shannon, you own Apple as well. I think everybody on the desk actually owns Apple. But also, you've been kind of adding in your portfolio what you call value tech. Can you explain that thesis? Sure. So, you know, if we had talked, Frank, a couple of years ago, we would have been meaningfully overweight technology. But that technology exposure also would have been fairly well concentrated in Apple, Microsoft, and Alphabet. And so what we've looked at is, as we believe that technology is the foundation um, for all innovation, disruption, and growth in the economy, you know, whether it's from two years from now to 10 years from now. Um, But we really have focused on profitable free cash flow generating technology companies. And so what we've done is take a look and, and to Jim's point about valuation, looked at the multiple on some of these you know, mega cap tech companies. There is certainly some significant uh, international exposure, which could hurt from an earnings perspective, but looked at are there areas of this tech ecosystem that we like that are trading at better multiples. So in the last year, we've added to those names, Cisco, Oracle, IBM. Um, We do have some expensive names in our portfolio. We have Workday. Um, We had CRM for a very long time. So it's not that we will shy away completely from those high multiple tech names. But I think being able to think about, you know, what are these companies going to be involved in? Who are their customers? Um, What is the growth, the underlying growth rate of those customers in terms of enterprise spend? And having a more diversified mix in technology is in our way insulating us somewhat from, you know, moving away from from growth for many investors. So, Kevin, we were talking about your portfolio. We're talking about two of your ETFs just a short time ago. But what's your position on tech right now, especially when it comes to mega cap tech? My concern with tech is that the PEs still haven't found ground. They're still not at where they're going to have to be by the time this is all flushed out. You're talking about 23P on Apple. This is the first time ever Apple's pulled back that I haven't topped it back up to 5%. It's sitting in around three. I'm going to leave it there. I think it's going to go down below 20 PE because there's a new narrative that's coming to that name, and it's happening in some tech names. Apple is no longer a tech stock. It's also a consumer electronics stock. 
And that is problematic. The destiny of consumer electronics, when they get commoditized, is margins start to get compressed. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe not everybody believes that, but I think at some point that starts to happen to Apple, which is why it's being reflected at under 150. When it broke that, that's when the narrative started. Tech itself is a growth story. It still is. But the PEs are too high. And so at the end of the day, it's safer to be in companies with less growth okay. and more cash flow. I love Jim, to say it. Jim, I, I see you over there. I like that flow. But Wait. really quick, I don't want to talk out of school, Kevin, but we were talking before the show. You actually had a, a bit of a forecast for Apple's PE. Where do you, where do you see it going? Do you mind if I share our conversation? Well, I, I, I don't want a million uh, you know, hate emails here, <laughs> but I think by the time this is over, it's going to be 18. And uh, I'm sorry, everybody. That's just what's going to happen. It's and not we, a disaster. You know, it's not a disaster. It's also expensive at 18. Yeah, look, it's a 20% reduction. I'm sorry. Yeah, Apple's yeah. just a stock like everything else. It's held up a lot better than the average stock this year. But guess what? It's a stock. It's an average stock. Um, I want to put one comment to what you're saying. When we talk about the P.E. is too high, that has to be relative to something. And it's got to be relative to the growth rate and earnings. The single most important metric for me in valuing a stock is the PEG ratio. It's the price to earnings ratio over the long term long term growth rate and earnings per share. Apple, Microsoft, one point nine times. Yeah. You look at something like Cisco, one and a half times. Look at Qualcomm, which people know I like. That's below one. Those are the stocks you want to own in this sort of environment. I agree with you, Jim, but there's another old school metric that's coming to the fore again that no one's used for years return on assets how well does a company take its assets and get return on it yeah. because that is in addition to PE going to hold it up in volatile times my whole metric now is I don't want to go down with the S&P I want to go down a third less so I want higher quality on the balance sheet I haven't talked this way in years I'm going real boring cash flow and that supports and as long as the dividends that are paying out are not done with debt, I'm liking that too. All right, speaking of free cash flow, how does NVIDIA, I know you recently bought some NVIDIA, how does that fit into your strategy? Ugh, the pain, the misery, the grief <laughs> on the thing, except that the growth metrics of that company are never going to end. The demand for these chips particularly, even though they can't ship their AI chips to China, I get that. Every single sector of the economy is going to be using these chips. So you have to decide where you're going to take your pain. It's a position I'm going to keep adding to the more it gets crushed because there's no sector that isn't going to use this technology. So it's almost an infrastructure play if you want to look at it that way. Now, I have not been successful in picking the bottom yet. People hate this name. They're using it as the index for all chip sector and semiconductor. And it's, if you're going to own one name, it's this and well, maybe two, Broadcom. I own that too. All right, we got to go to break. Give us one more cash flow. Give us, give us the Kevin O'Leary uh, cash flow. Cash flow. <laughs> all right, coming up, oil spiking on news that OPEC is planning a historic production cut. What it means for energy stocks from here and how the committee is playing it next. <clears throat> Excuse me, halftime, coming back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, 
drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. And welcome back to Halftime. Oil hitting its highest level since mid-September and approaching its 50-day moving average to the upside. OPEC planning to cut production by 2 million barrels a day. That is the largest cut since the start of the pandemic all the way back in 2020. Energy, the only sector in the green today. Joe, how are you playing this news? Well, I'm, I'm playing the news the same, the same way I've been playing it here for the better part of 2022, which is an overweight exposure to both healthcare and to energy, Frank, to your point. Um, I think the diversified approach in energy is the right one. Having exposure to natural gas, having exposure to oil, E&P, even refiners, or uh, a lot of the, the, the uh, transportation pipelines is another way you could play it overall. But I don't know if we've seen an environment like this for oil where you have such conflicting policy globally, where you really because of that conflicting policy are creating a tremendous amount of stress on future supplies, a, a stress that quite candidly can't be absorbed because there was such an imbalance between supply and demand. So uh, I don't see how that stress on supply resolves itself going forward. And I'm not one that thinks that ownership of energy equities has to come with the price of oil above $100. Bouncing from 75 yeah. to 85, which is what we've done here in the last Joe, week. we're having some technical difficulties with your feed, so just sit tight for a second. We're going to come back to you on this. Shannon, I want to come over to you. Um, we're seeing, again, that historic production cut by OPEC, 2 million barrels a day. How are you playing it? So we have a, you know, essentially a slight underweight in energy just from our strategy, Frank. But to kind of take a step back, you know, you, you sort of have to weigh this in terms of what sectors or industries, you know, are potentially going to benefit from a continued high cost environment. And which of those industries do you know, do we have a long term supply demand mismatch? I would say those two, you know, if you look at it from an investment perspective, are energy and housing. And so if, if I look at the potential for uh, to to gain exposure in this sector, I actually want to make sure that we're capturing as much of the upside as possible. And so we've we've really targeted the refiners as our exposure. But I think if you think about this in, in a in in a broader scale, um, you know, a, a sharp increase in, in energy prices again coming into the end of the year. Um, while it would be good for energy investors, you know, one of the benefits that we've seen from a consumer confidence perspective has been this decline in gas prices. And so, I, you know, I, I look at it in, in sort of a balanced view. Um, and I and I think that longer term, if you're really looking to play the fact that we are in an undersupplied energy environment, um, you know, probably something like the integrateds on a longer term basis might be a a steady way to play this particular. 
space. So, Kevin, you are trying to play this particular space. You actually just recently bought Pioneer Resources up 2.5% right now. Yeah. Um, again, good balance sheet, good cash flow. That's what matters to me. But I will say one thing about energy that's starting to bother me quite a bit, and I've been doing a little work on this. I'm asking myself, why does it trade at a perpetual massive discount to the index, in other words, on a PE basis. Why is it that energy always trades at a discount? Now, you could argue it's because it's volatile and it's a commodity. There's another problem brewing. The proxy companies, there's only two that do 95% of the proxy service for pension and index wealth funds, are selecting against energy. And nobody knows why. You can't, there's no transparency, because I've started to ask, well, wait a second, I want the incremental buyer for my shares to be a pension plan or to be a sovereign wealth fund. And I ask, why don't you guys have any energy in your portfolio? They say, oh, our proxy service says we can't have energy. But they don't say why. So I think there's going to be a movement afoot by people like me to start pushing these proxy services to give us more information. Because when I looked it up, it's totally, I don't even know who owns the proxy service. So I'm taking on a little challenge here for a sector that I like that I can't own because so many others can't own it. And it's trading at a big discount. But I did buy Pioneer. I like it for the next 18 months. I'm a believer that oil prices do hold here, maybe not go up significantly more. But these proxy services, you know, they've got a lot of explaining to do. The old <laughs> Lucy. I don't know if we can handle more voices. Uh, Jim, over to you really quick. Last word. I know you own ExxonMobil and Kinder Morgan. Uh, and Transocean. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm in the space. I'm mightily overweight versus the uh, index overall. And, and, Frank, what I would say here is I'm going to go back to what Shannon was saying. There's a dichotomy here between, on the one hand, you know, you want growth in the economy that promotes energy uh, uh, prices higher. On the other hand, that's bad for the consumer. I want to put that into perspective of where we were just a few months ago when oil was at $120 a barrel. I don't think we need to wring our hands that it's approaching 90. I think we need to actually rejoice that the predictions of $200 a barrel oil, which were all over the place after Russia invaded Ukraine, have not come to pass. All right, there we go. Well, up next, an upgrade for one stock that's fallen 18% in a month and a price target cut for one of its rivals. Kevin O'Leary might do more voices. Ricky Ricardo, we don't even know. He also owns both names. We'll debate those calls coming up next on Halftime. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Seema Modi. Here's a CNBC News update. A trial is starting in Spain over a 2013 train derailment that killed 80 passengers and injured 145 others. Prosecutors are seeking four-year prison sentences for the train driver and a former security director at a rail infrastructure company. An investigation showed the train was traveling over 110 miles per hour, more than twice the speed limit on that stretch of track. 
South Korea and the United States are conducting missile drills to protest North Korea's reckless actions. South Korean and American troops fired a volley of missiles into the sea and also staged a bombing drill in the Yellow Sea. This follows North Korea's recent ballistic missile test that flew over Japan and prompted a warning for residents to take cover. Meanwhile, the U.S. Navy is deploying its newest and most advanced aircraft carrier, the USS Gerald R. Ford. Cost a total of $15 billion and is the largest carrier in the world. The Ford will train with vessels from other NATO countries and Russia's amid Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine. Frank, I'll send it back to you. Seema Modi, thank you for those headlines. All right, now for our call of the day. Morgan Stanley out with a bullish call on Ford, upgrading the auto stock to overweight. Noting its pullback offers an attractive entry point, the firm also cuts its price target from GM. Big price target cut there from 42 down to 30. We're also reiterating it to equal weight, equal weight rating. It's hard to say than you might think. Uh, it's our call of the day. Kevin, you, bo- you own both Ford and GM. Yes, Ford first. It is a supply chain story. There's no demand problem. Everybody wants a 150. They can't get one. And so the question as a shareholder, you sit here at the $12 range, is if they could wave a magic wand and tell you they've solved their supply chain problems, the stock would be 20 bucks. That's what I think. That's why I own it. I think the management there is pretty good. And I think they're going to try everything they can to solve supply chain, which is everybody's problem, but Ford's particularly. Now, GE is a play on electric vehicles. GM. Sorry, GM. Exactly. Um, and, and I look at it and say, look, there's going to be somebody behind Tesla here. They spent a lot of money on developing these products. Nobody gives them any credit for it. So GM is a place to play alternatively at a much lower P.E. and hopefully a lot less volatility. I don't agree with this call if it's a sell call. I think you own these together if you're going to be exposed to automotive. And I really like what they're doing in EV because they've got some great engineers. I teach graduating cohorts of engineers in electrical engineering. They are hiring a ton of those kids. So they're doing something right. All right, so you're a big believer in, in their bright drop or just their general ability to convert all vehicles from internal combustion to electric? I think it's going to take a lot longer than people think, but the fact is they're pouring a lot of CapEx, a lot of intellectual capital into it. They're going to be, over time, one of the big players in EV at an affordable price. These guys are going to bring cars in the mid-range price. That's your thesis on why you own General Motors. Now, if you don't think that's going to work and you think the only company that's going to have electric vehicles is Tesla, <laughs> you don't do this, but I don't agree with that. Well, to this point, all right, GM just announced their quarterly results at the beginning of this week, and they had record-breaking sales of the Bolt EV. Uh, And this is as the Lyric is about to come on board, and the Hummer EV and a bunch of other platforms. So part of what Adam Jonas's call is is that he thinks that the Ford pre-announcement a couple of weeks ago transfers over to GM. If you look at those quarterly uh, sales figures, I I just don't see that. But the bigger disagreement I have is where he takes the value of Cruise, which is their autonomous vehicle business, and kind of says it's worthless, kind of says it's a money pit. Um, First off, I totally disagree. But to the point that the stock is down four and a half percent right now, look, no fundamental investor like me or Kevin woke up this morning and said, oh, yeah, I think the cruise division stinks and I'm going to sell GM for that. That's just not how fundamental uh, investors think. So what you've got going on right now with the stock price is algorithms. They're trading off of this headline report. Hey, the target price is cut at Morgan Stanley from 42 to 30. Do not fall for that, all right? If you are a fundamental investor or if you're a trader, this is a great time to step into it. This is just noise, what's happening today. The future is very bright for General Motors. Yeah, just as an aside, you mentioned the Lear. That's the Cadillac EV. It's a beautiful vehicle. Joe, over to you. Glad to have you back. 
Yeah, I'm glad to be back. So uh, for either uh, Kevin or Jim, because I've owned GM in the past, I've owned Ford in the past, and obviously uh, Adam's note raised awareness for me to, to take a look at both of those. But how do they address uh, what Adam talks about with the China business for GM? And he basically says that's where he's overtly pessimistic. I think you have to be pessimistic about China right now because we're basically in a trade war, an economic war, and we're starting to cut them off from chips and everything else. But it doesn't change the fundamental demand for these cars and these vehicles and these trucks in Europe and in North America. China's going to get worked out. You've been hearing that from everybody from Starbucks down to Tesla. It's going to get worked out over time. The premise that this company is not going to participate in the explosive growth of EVs is okay. ludicrous. All right, we got to leave the conversation right there. Uh, coming up, financials among the top gainers to start the fourth quarter. The committee debates if you should be betting on big banks ahead of their earnings next week. And tomorrow, don't miss CNBC's ESG Impact. Join leaders who are solving key ESG challenges to ensure a more sustainable and equitable future. For details to register, go to CNBCEvents.com and Halftime. We'll be right back. Welcome back to halftime. As you can see, markets off session lows. We're also about a week away from when the big banks kick off earnings season. And today, Morgan Stanley out with a new note saying, strap in for a rocky ride. Should you bank on the financials from here? Joe, we're going to come back over to you. You have some exposure here. Tepid enthusiasm. How, that's how I would describe my exposure to financials. I own Bank of America. I own Morgan Stanley. Most recently, over the last couple of months, I've been a seller of J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs. Uh, I think you have to have concern uh, about trading. I think the overall trading environment and revenues from capital markets are not going to be as strong as they've been uh, and, and been a catalyst in prior quarters. I think that's one of the bigger challenges. I also think when you look at these companies and understand that you're going to have to see uh, lending standards begin to tighten, uh, that's where ultimately the tepid enthusiasm is, is created for me. It's offset by the understanding that the balance sheets of these companies are very strong. We know that. We've acknowledged that multiple times over the last 18 months. Now you need the performance to come from behind that. So I'm maintaining my position in Morgan Stanley and Bank of America. I'm looking elsewhere outside the banks to get financial exposure, looking at a lot of the insurance companies like MetLife, AIG, Chubb, Progressive, and also have my eye on Berkshire Hathaway. That probably would be the one name in financials that I would add here in the coming weeks. Yeah, important to note, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs both getting downgraded today by Atlanta, uh, Atlantic Equities. Uh, Shannon, over to you. You have uh, a lot of exposure to banks, actually. BNY Mellon, BlackRock, J.P. Morgan, which is actually down about 2.5% right now. BlackRock down about a percent and a half. Yeah, our financials exposure has always been fairly diversified, Frank. So if we think about um, making sure that we're positioning ourselves for areas that can continue to grow. So for instance, we own a company like Schwab, which will continue to grow as as more and more retail investors, frankly, retire um, and, and roll over their assets onto their platform. BlackRock, a leader in asset management, um, really offering a, a complex and, and deep uh, set of solutions. So from our viewpoint, you know, financials always kind of kick off earnings season, I think. But, you know, from from for us looking at our financials exposure, um, we can pull several levers and we can see, you know, some transparency in, in, ter in terms of those being able to grow even against some of the headwinds that that Joe so succinctly uh, 
described just now. Yeah, we'll have to watch and see what comes out of earnings season when the big banks report. We want to turn our attention to a big story that we covered yesterday on Halftime. Twitter shares pulling back after that big spike yesterday as Elon Musk revives his bid to buy the company. Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary, he weighs in. He recently sold his Twitter stake. Are you thinking about getting back in? Don't tell us yet. Wait till after the break. Are you going to find out when Halftime returns in just two minutes? Welcome back to Halftime. Twitter's up nearly 20% this week on the news that Elon Musk is proceeding with the purchase of the company at 54.20 a share. Kevin, obviously you've been following all this, but you actually sold back in August. What's your take on what we're seeing right now? Uh, my assumption, my investment thesis as to why I didn't get back into Twitter was that it would be negotiated down, new price being around $35. That was my assumption. And my thinking was, if you pull the deal away from the stock, it's, it's, it's one of the poorly, most poorly run social media companies and probably the worst run company, it would go down to between 12 and 15 bucks. And that Musk would be able to, uh, through you know, the threat of litigation, basically do the deal much less. And I don't know why he didn't do that. He didn't have to pay this ridiculous price because the world's corrected. He could have negotiated, but he's Elon. And you know, I got a lot of respect for what he does. And I think this company needs new management. I think he should get the whacking stick out if he's going to own it and, and just clean house and start from scratch because it's, it's a horrible company. And, it's, it, you know, Disney didn't buy it because of bots. Iger said that recently when he was questioned about it. They were going to try and drag him into court. It is full of bots. It's a poorly run company. And that should, if he's going to take it over, maybe he can get back his $44 billion. I don't think it's worth $10 billion. So that's why I sold it, and, but I missed out on an opportunity. Yeah, a lot of questions about uh, Jack Dorsey's potential role going forward. A lot of questions, period, when it comes to Twitter. We'll have to wait and see. Our David Faber said the deal could close at the end of this week or possibly even next week. All right, straight ahead here on Halftime. Retail among the worst performers today and a new warning about the group ahead of the crucial holiday shopping season, how the committee is positioning. And also, we want to make sure we mention it is Hispanic Heritage Month. And here at CNBC, we're featuring and celebrating our teammates and our contributors. Here is Frank Del Rio, Norwegian Cruise Line CEO. I've been both very lucky and very blessed to be Hispanic, and I wear it proudly. Being a Cuban refugee in the 1960s and growing up in Connecticut, one of the things my parents instilled me at a young age um, was a standard of excellence. Whatever you do, be the best at it. Work hard and great things will come. And if I could only give someone two pieces of advice, that would be it. Reach for the stars. We can all get there. All right, coming back to Halftime Report. Taking a look at the markets right now, well off of our session lows right now. We're seeing the Dow down about 100 points at one point. Actually, when we actually just began the show, it was down about 300 points. The S&P and the NASDAQ also making quite the comeback. The S&P about a percent higher than it was just about an hour ago. The NASDAQ about a half a percent higher than it was just about an hour ago. All right, turning our attention to retail. The XRT retail ETF coming off its fifth straight negative quarter. The longest losing streak since its inception. And despite the bounce to start Q4, Cowan is calling for weak holiday sales and more guidance cuts. Shannon, you own some retail names, including Costco, which reports its September sales right after the close. 
Yeah. So let, let me just briefly speak about Costco. Uh, you know, we believe that there's a, a different story, if you will, as it relates to Costco's place in the retail space um, in terms of SKU management, in terms of the subscription model. Um, so we're less concerned about Costco. We believe a lot of uh, consumers switched over to Costco during the pandemic, and they really haven't seen losses there. They've also been very, very disciplined in terms of adding new stores. Um, biggest concern for us kind of going into this holiday season is Best Buy. Uh, you know, we bought this earlier in the year. We were obviously early on this. Um, the good thing about management at Best Buy is that they know how to deal with technological um, issues in terms of product management and inventory. The problem here is, is that this is this definitely has a headwind. And so there's not a lot of excitement in the discretionary space for us right now. And so being very thoughtful about where we're taking our exposure is going to continue into the first half of next year. Yeah. Questions about, uh, I think you used a word that's almost a four-letter word in retail right now, inventory. Are you worried that just all these companies have too much inventory and that their discounts are just going to have to be too deep? I mean, I just got an email from Nike advertising 60% discounts on things. I'm sorry, Shannon, I was talking to you. Yeah, I mean... Sorry, <laughs> I thought you might be. Uh, yeah, no, the inventory inventory management is the number one challenge, right? We saw this with Target, we saw this with Walmart. Every single retailer that you own, you should be looking very specifically at inventory management, how management teams have done it in the past, what types of goods are still being bought as we see this goods to services uh, rotation. Jim and I talked about this on the call before the show. And so I think being very careful about understanding how management is going to guide for inventory over the course course of the next two or three quarters, um, that is, you know, a big factor in how in these stocks, whether they can outperform their peers or not into the first half of 2023. Jim, you have a little bit of retail exposure, just not traditional. Yeah, not traditional. I've got Home Depot. I've got GPC. So that's home building and autos. I'm staying out of traditional retail and it does come down to this inventory issue. The consumer actually seems to be hanging in there in terms of sales. And even though gasoline is bumping up, it's down from those June lows. So I don't think the consumer is the problem. It is inventories, Frank, and inventories are high enough that prices should come down, that's going to hurt margins. Um, but by the way, that should correct. I mean, there are all these news articles about how uh, cargo ship sailings are way, way, way down because demand is down. So this pendulum effect in the supply chain, this bullwhip effect uh, post the pandemic is continuing. And now we're going to get an inventory shortage a couple of quarters from now, but we're not there yet. All right, Mr. Wonderful, looking at the notes, you're a fashionista. TJ Maxx owner. Let me tell you something, <laughs> which is why I love the return on asset test on every balance sheet. Long before we were talking about building inventories and retailers, their return on assets started to collapse. And that's because inventory was building up in their balance sheets. If you watch this old school metric, you'll catch these dogs before they bite you. I don't own much of this anymore because ROA started to collapse. If your return on assets slow, inventory's building, take it behind the barn and shoot it. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Quite the statement. I'm going to leave it on that note. Final <laughs> trades next on Halftime. What a call on retail. Stay with us. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime podcast now. All right, welcome back to halftime. Uh, markets taking a sharp reversal right now off their lows of the day. The Dow down about 100 points. Big reversal there. The S&P and the Nasdaq both down uh, about, excuse me, the S&P down about a half a percent. The Nasdaq down 1%. Still uh, a move to the upside for all three. All right, time now for final trades. Let's begin. Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary. Lamar advertising. I think it's been beaten up enough, and I think advertising will continue even if we have a soft recession next year. It's in the stock, and it pays over 5% dividend. Jim. 
Wynn Resorts, take a look at the one and three month charts on this. It's been mightily outperforming the markets overall. Why? It's not just China, although that's a big part of it. China's reopening. Las Vegas is just killing it. And that's really where the value is in the stock. Joe T. Regeneron, $8 billion market cap. Biotech company, reasonable valuation. They continues to push higher. All right, you're having some technical difficulties, but Regeneron is your pick. And last word, Shannon. Eaton, we bought the stock a few weeks ago, tied to the super cycle that we think is coming in terms of grid investment um, and has significant upside from an earnings perspective over the next three years. All right, as I mentioned, we're watching a turnaround on Wall Street right now. That does it for halftime. The exchange, it begins right now. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.